This morning we are concluding our sermon series in the book of James. Uh, you know, it's not a long letter, just five chapters, and uh, again, not long chapters, but, but I, think, uh, I think the last nine weeks that we've been in the book of James maybe has, has proved that there's plenty there for us to consider and, uh, and apply to our lives. It's, it's such a practical book in the way that, that James writes it. Uh, we're, given, we're given good direction, good, good challenge regarding what it, what it practically looks like for our, our faith to be actively showing itself in our lives. You know, and as I've mentioned repeatedly over these nine weeks, James drives home the reality that, that a living faith will show itself through our actions. Uh, it, 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 it's just what it does. Like, right? There's no way around it. Uh, it affects our speech, as we've talked about. It, it affects how we face trials. It affects how we interact with one another. Uh, it affects where we search for wisdom. It affects our view of tomorrow. It affects our view of wealth. It, it affects our uh, anticipation for the return of Jesus, as we have talked about. Living faith is active. Now, perhaps it's possible to read James's letter and, and then just assume, okay, we hold the key that everything, for everything that happens to us. Um, we might come to see ourselves as wholly responsible for what happens to our lives. Uh, God did his part in securing our salvation, and now it's, it's solely up to us to, to live our lives as best we can. And, and I think we should make no mistake, it, it's good to recognize that our decisions and our actions matter, that, that's for sure. But that view of faith really would be, would be incomplete and, and would, be, would be lacking. A, a living faith that is at work in our lives doesn't only affect our eternal salvation, but also our daily life here and now. So it's not that we put our faith in Jesus that one time a while back when we prayed a prayer or came to the altar or whatever, and now we're forgiven of sins and we're good to go. It's that we put our faith in Jesus every day to guide us, provide for us for that day. And so I think as James ends his letter, I think he knows that that is an attitude that is best fostered through the continual practice of prayer. And so he concludes his letter to the believers that have been scattered around the, the, the Roman world at that point. He concludes with a focus upon prayer. So, so that's what we're going to be looking at, the end of chapter 5. Now, now the first verse in, uh, in this kind of closing section is a bit of an all-encompassing statement. Uh, James really shows that there isn't any situation in which prayer is not appropriate. So look with me at, at uh, James chapter 5, verse 13. James asks, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So we'll just stop right there for now. So I, James kind of highlights the ends of the spectrum in that verse, whether we are struggling through suffering or kind of riding high on the emotions of joy 
we ought to converse with God in prayer. Now, now I know that, that James says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. But we ought to understand those songs of praise as a form of prayer. Singing songs to God, as we were doing, is still conversing with God. It's just doing it to music. So, and and I, Paul makes a really strong link between singing and praying in, in 1 Corinthians. In, in chapter 14, there's a section where he's talking about uh, praying in tongues and the proper way in which that ought to be done. And, and then he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. He says, I pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So in talking about this connection between spirit and mind there, which is the main thing he's talking about, he, he describes both praying and singing as a way to do that. So he kind of uses those interchangeably there. So whether we are, are suffering or cheerful, what James is telling us is we ought to be conversing with God. We ought to be in prayer. When suffering, we ought to come to God in prayer rather than despairing about our situation or, or writhing in anger over our situation. Now, on the other side, when, when cheerful, we ought to come to God in prayer rather than forgetting the one who is the source of every good and perfect gift. Both situations, we ought to respond prayerfully. Now, now, now we're not going to dwell long on this opening verse because James goes on to, to speak about other situations in, in more specific detail. But the point is, here right at the open, no matter where you and I find ourselves today, we would do well to spend time listening to, talking to God about the situation. So whether suffering, whether cheerful, we ought to come to God in prayer. But then James goes into some specific situations, and he first brings up something that has impacted mankind since sin first entered the picture all the way back, and that would be physical illness. So follow along with me in verse 14, James 5, 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. We're going to stop right there for now. Now, I, I find James's statements here to be simple, and yet incredibly difficult to understand and, and also to preach, I think. They're simple in that his commands are clear. They're concise, right? They're, they're not necessarily confusing in what they are, but they're difficult in that the outcome is not always what we desire or ask for, right? So, so regarding the simplicity of, of his commands here, we, we see that anyone who is sick is encouraged to call upon the elders of the church to, to pray and anoint them. Now, now, this may not always be our default reaction to sickness that we face, right? 
especially in our modern age of medicine, where, where it seems like there's at least one kind of prescription for, for a, a, every ailment that, that, we, could, uh, that we could face. Uh, but it, it wouldn't just be now. I mean, this attitude would have, been, would have been common even in the first century, where things weren't quite as advanced medically. There were still plenty of treatments that provided varying degrees of success. Now, now God has blessed mankind with his image. That's part of what it means to be human. We're created in God's image. And I would say part of what it means to be created in God's image is to be creative. And our creativity shows itself in so many different ways, medical treatments and advancements included. That, that's part of the creativity that, that God has given to us. So the things able to be done today by doctors, by medical professionals, it, it's truly a blessing from God. It's God's image being lived out among us. James's command to call upon the elders is not a call to turn our back on modern medicine. But it is to recognize that, that doctors are limited in their, in their knowledge, they're limited in their abilities, while God is sovereign over all things and, and able to raise the dead back to life if he so wills it. So, so to call upon the elders to pray, I would say, is to recognize that the great physician has a place among our medical team. And not just a place, but, but he's the great physician, right? And so, and, and again, as, as James says, call on the elders. It's not that the elders of the church are the only ones spiritual enough or holy enough to pray over a person who's sick. That, 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 that's not it. Rather, it's, it's the elders who have been tasked with shepherding the local body of Christ. And part of that shepherding is visiting the sick and praying for healing. And you can see this back in the Old Testament as well. It, it, it's rather telling that, that in Ezekiel chapter 34, God is speaking to the leaders of Israel, to the shepherds of Israel. And, and he had this to say to them. He said that the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. So as God was coming before the leaders of Israel and, and really kind of saying, this is the issue I have with you, that, that's part of what he said. Part of their failure as shepherds of God's people was their failure to care for the sick. They were tasked with that and they were expected to do that very thing. And the same holds true for the elders in the church today. Because it is part of the role of elders to pray for the sick, those who are sick are told to call upon them to pray. And, and I would say implicit in this command is that, that the elders do not force themselves on a person, but are openly welcomed by, by the one who is sick. There, there's responsibility for the sick person to reach out and to call. And, and, and I think you'll, you'll see more of why this is the case in just a little bit as we work our way down through these verses. But but the sick are to call upon the elders of the church to both pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, as James says here. 
Now, there's been a lot of discussion about, about why James includes anointing with oil. In, in, a, in a section that is primarily focused on prayer, I don't think anointing is mentioned because it has some kind of special power that prayer does not, right? That prayer just doesn't quite get us there, and so we need the oil to put us over the top. I, I don't think that. Rather, anointing with oil is a symbolic way to drive home the reality of what is taking place when a sick person is prayed over. So again, going back to the Old Testament, anointing with oil was something that was more common during that time. We see it come up time and again in the Old Testament. Every time someone or something was anointed with oil, it was done to communicate a dedication to God's service for a special purpose. So, so uh, Jacob, for instance, when he awoke from a dream where God had spoken to him, he, he anointed the rock in the place where he was. Uh, priests, their clothes, the tabernacle itself, the items in the tabernacle, they were all anointed with oil. Kings were set apart for their position by anointing with oil. It, it, was a, it was a recognition that God's purposes mattered first and foremost. It, it was a dedication of someone or something to those very purposes of God. And so anointing with oil symbolizes that. When the elders are called to anoint a sick person with oil, it, it's a recognition that God's purposes are the highest. And that whatever happens in the life of the sick person, it's our desire for God to be honored, to be glorified, for his purposes to be carried out. And so if, if the sickness is taken away through medical means, the person is devoted to God and to his ways. If, if, the, if the sickness is taken away through miraculous means, the person is devoted to God and to his ways. If the sickness is not taken away in this life, the person is devoted to God and his ways. The, the, the oil is not a, a magical ingredient in, in all of this. It's a, a, it's a clear symbol of dedication. So, so those who are sick are encouraged. Call upon the elders to pray over them and anoint them. But that's not all that the sick person is told to do. They are also instructed to confess their sins, that they might be forgiven. Now, when we look through the Bible, the Bible urges us to understand that not all sickness is caused by personal sin. We live in a fallen world, and our physical bodies are not immune to that. And so we must remember John chapter 9, for instance, when Jesus was asked whether a certain man born blind was so afflicted because of his own sins or his parents, to which Jesus clearly said, neither. That this, this blindness in his life is not a matter of his sins, his parents' sins. It's not about that. So the Bible urges us to remember that. Not all physical sickness is the, is the result of sin. However, the Bible also urges us to understand that sometimes God does use physical illness as a way of disciplining us, as a way of drawing us back toward himself. 
And, you know, we, we fall into temptation of sin. We do. We're humans. We're broken. That, that, that uh, the nature we have within us, the context in which we live, can lead us away from God. And there's times where we need to be awakened that we might remember who God is, be called back to him. So in Mark chapter 2, for example, we see that when, when Jesus is confronted with a paralyzed man, he forgave his sins, first and foremost. Um, if this maybe sounds like we've talked about this recently, we did. <laughs> if you remember this past summer when we were in the Psalms, uh, we looked at David's words in Psalm 38. And it's in that psalm that David made statements like this. He said, There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. So you see David making that connection in his own life. And in my sermon that morning, I, I went back and looked up my statement. And, and this is what I said. The Bible states throughout its pages that when it comes to physical illness or physical suffering or other difficult situations we face, the answer regarding whether or not it is caused by sin in our lives is a firm and confident maybe. Maybe. If our sickness has at its root sin in our lives, then it would be futile to pray for healing apart from an examination of ourselves and confession of sin, which may be present. The, the great good that could come out of that sickness would be forfeited if sin is not confessed and repented of. Now, let's just put it out there. Confession of sin in the presence of others can be awkward and uncomfortable, and none of us probably wake up in the morning longing to do that kind of a thing. Or I'll at least raise my hand, okay? But, but an unwillingness to do so, especially when James calls us to do so in, in instances like this, an unwillingness to do, show, to do so shows a lack of faith in our praying. We cannot pray a prayer of faith if we're stubbornly holding on to sin in our lives that God is calling us to repent of. So when we think about this, this process that James is, has put before us, permeating all of it is faith in God, trust in God, right? Faith in God's healing power shown by the desire to call the elders to pray. Faith in God's sovereignty shown by, by praying to God and anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Faith in God's will for our lives, shown by our confession and repentance. And James says that when, when praying in faith, he says, the one who is sick will be saved. The Lord will raise them up. And that's where we come to the difficulty, right? It's what makes this passage so difficult to understand and to preach. There's a confidence in James' words that I can struggle to connect with experiences in my own life. I've prayed in what I thought were prayers of faith and did not see healing take place. Maybe you can look at yourself, your own situation, own situations in your own lives and, and echo that too. And some would say then, well, 
James is never really talking about physical illness. He's talking about spiritual illness. Some would say that. And, and so as such, spiritual healing is promised and received by all those who have faith. That's nice. That's maybe one way to try and resolve the tension. But that disregards the plain meaning of James's words. He's clearly speaking of physical illness here. I don't, I don't think there's any way around that. Um, others would say, well, this really only applied to the apostolic age, to the early church. So miraculous healings, they just don't take place anymore. So, so this doesn't, it's not really for today. And, you know, that's forcing James to say something that he never even hints at. Nowhere in here does he even remotely say that, that this is just for then. And so I, I, found, I found a statement by, by Doug Moo. In, uh, in a commentary I was reading that I, I thought to be helpful as I was wrestling with this text. And so I wanted to read it to you this morning. Uh, Doug Moo says, a more helpful observation is to note James's specific reminder that the prayer must be a prayer offered in faith. This faith, while certainly including the notion of confidence in God's ability to answer, also involves absolute confidence in the perfection of God's will. A true prayer of faith, then, always includes within it a tacit acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in all matters, that it is God's will that must be done. And it is clear that it is by no means always God's will to heal those who are ill. Now, as I said, I, I find those thoughts helpful. Um, at the same time, I can't say it resolves completely all the tension that I feel in reading this passage. Uh, I stand before you this morning as a pastor and, and as a follower of Jesus, still wrestling with these words, right? And, but confident in the one who spoke these words, confident enough to proclaim them before you, that even though I don't have all the answers to specifically how and why God works through that situation, that God still proclaimed these words and still calls us to them. And, and, and it's also for that reason that, um, that, that I approached the elders about making a more concerted effort on our part to, to live out this specific direction from James. Um, I, I want you to know you are always able to call upon us as elders at any time, right? I mean, no appointment is necessary to ask us to pray for you. Never has been, never will be. But along with that, we, we also want to set up a regular time where you can come and be prayed over, as James prescribes here. Our, our current practice every time we have a monthly elder meeting is to spend our first, uh, the first portion of our time praying together for our church. What we want to do moving forward is incorporate this kind of praying into that time. So when we have our monthly meetings, we invite you to come that we might pray over you and anoint you. And we'll follow what James says in this passage here. 
Uh, we're not going to force anyone to come. Your, your willing participation will be considered your calling on us to pray. Uh, we will ask about any sin that ought to be confessed. We'll pray over you and anoint you with oil. And we'll do all of this in the faith that God's power is complete and that his will is perfect. And so, uh, our, just to let you know, our next meeting is Thursday, December 15th, 6.30 here at the church. If you would like us to pray over you in this way, uh, then please come. And again, you can call, you can call for us uh, to pray over you at any time, but, but we encourage you to consider coming to this specific time of prayer if the Lord leads you in that way. As I said, we wanted to make a more concerted effort to be proactive about that as elders. Um, yeah, and I, if you've got any other questions about that, you can come talk to me or any of the elders. We'd, we'd love to talk with you more. But James calls us here, is anyone among you sick, then, then pray, right? Just like he opened, if we're suffering, if we're joyful, you know, the, the, the whole gamut, we ought to pray. If we're sick, we ought to pray. Another specific situation for prayer, which James addresses, is more generally praying for a miracle. So a miracle can be defined as something that would not have taken place were it not for the direct intervention from God. So if, if natural processes were allowed to run their course, then what happened wouldn't have happened. And again, it applies to situations of sickness like we've just discussed, but is broader than that. So, so look with me at James chapter 5. Uh, we'll pick, pick it up where we left off, halfway through verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So, so not only is it right to pray for a divine miracle when the situation seems helpless from an earthly perspective, but we also ought to see ourselves as able to pray for a divine miracle. And it might seem counterintuitive for James to use Elijah as an example, right? I mean, after all, this is Elijah. Elijah was the great prophet that went toe-to-toe -to -toe with hundreds of false prophets on Mount Carmel. Um, Elijah was blessed to be taken by God up into heaven in a chariot of fire. I mean, how can we even compare ourselves to Elijah? I mean, that, that's what I think when I read this. But what James makes sure to point out is he says, no, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, no, Elijah is a human, just like you, just like me. He did, not, he did not have access to anything unique to him. Elijah was just like us. He was simply a man who had faith in God. And so at God's leading, he prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't for three and a half years. You think about Jesus talking with his disciples 
again, humans just like us. I, can, I feel like I can relate to the disciples a little more than, than Elijah when you, when you see some of, the, some of the ways that the disciples are, are, are shown to stumble, right? But, but the disciples, just like us, Jesus says that if they had faith like a mustard seed, they could tell a mountain to move from one place to another. Now, like we discussed with prayer for physical healing, that faith includes a confidence in the perfection of God's will. So we cannot muster up enough faith to counteract God's will. Not going to happen. However, the smallest amount of faith aligned with God's will has great power. And that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples, especially, right? Small as a mustard seed, but aligned with the will of God, mountain can move. We can have faith that our God can and does miraculously work in our world today. And if the miracle that we desire is part of God's purposes to bring about his kingdom and proclaim his glory, then we can be confident that he will perform it. Again, I have questions, right? Like, God, how can this situation not be part? Like, I, but but if, if we are aligned with God's will and our faith is in him, we can be confident that he will bring it about. So praying for miracles, and then in the final two verses, James doesn't directly mention prayer in the last two verses, but he does speak of a situation which has been the cause of much prayer uh, over, over the centuries. So if you look with me in verse 19, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me, let me say first that people have tried to use these two verses to make arguments both, uh, both for and against the possibility of losing one's salvation. I'm talking about eternal security. And, and while I'm not, what I'm going to say doesn't apply to the whole Bible, but I am saying that these two specific verses don't sway that debate one way or the other. Uh, they're... they're it can be used in that way, but they really don't sway the debate. James doesn't inform us whether the person wandering from the truth is a believer or merely someone who was in the presence of the body of believers. He doesn't tell us that. We aren't told if being brought back from wandering is being brought back to saving faith or, or being brought back to the God um, for whom the person was created. We're, we're, just, we're just not told those details. What James does tell us is the great importance of pursuing those who are wandering. To do so, James says, is, is to, it, it's to participate in God's call to come to him that their soul would be saved from death by the covering of, of a multitude of sins. And, and, you know, the way we pursue those who are wandering it's through relationship and conversation and service, things like that, but, but we also pursue them through prayer. 
We pursue those who wander through praying. And there's a, there's a great example of this from the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 22. Uh, when, when he's conversing with uh, Simon Peter, Jesus says these words to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is warning Peter, hey, you're, you're, you're going to be, you, you know, Satan's pursuing you. He's going to pull, try to pull you away. I have prayed for you. But then Jesus says, when you have turned again. I mean, what does that mean? It means Peter's going to wander, right? He's going to turn away. Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus knew Peter would disown him three times. And yet, he prayed for him that when he turned again, when he was brought back, that it would have a positive impact on others, right? Strengthen your brothers after you come back. Jesus prayed for Peter. Now, he physically pursued Peter also. John chapter 21, we see that after the breakfast, Jesus walks with Peter and reinstates him. But Jesus, here in Luke, he prayed for Peter. So, so when someone wanders, we, we ought to be on our knees praying that they'll be brought back to truth. And we can't change a person's heart. We can't make them believe anything, right? We're, we're not going to work the Holy Spirit out of a job. There's no danger there. But we can and we should approach God's throne asking him to do a work that only he can do in the life of a wanderer. We ought to be on our knees praying for those who are wandering. Now you think about you think about other places in the New Testament, especially, you know, Paul in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, he says it so succinctly. He just says, pray at all times. James here, James spells it out in detail. He says, when we're suffering, we pray. When we are cheerful, we pray. When we are ill, we pray. When we are in need of a miracle, we pray. When we pursue a wanderer, we pray. You think about our society. Our society places such a high value on self-sufficiency and independence, right? We see that all over the place. The Bible places high value on God-sufficiency and God-dependency. And, and really, those two things are fostered and lived out through our praying, and we remember our God-sufficiency and our God-dependency when we come before God in prayer. And we rest in that as well when we come before him in prayer. Now, we haven't really spoken at all today about how to pray. Right? This isn't a how-to-pray sermon. This is a, a when-to-pray sermon. James gives us all these different instances. And so maybe you're thinking in your mind, well, that's well and good, Aaron, but how do I pray? I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm adequate or sufficient in that area. And, and there's places in the Bible that speak to the, to the how. Um, Paul's words in Ephesians 6, uh, the Lord's Prayer spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Those are a couple of, of the more how to pray passages. 
but, but we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that, that we have to arrive at a certain level of proficiency before we begin praying. James didn't begin his statements about prayer by, by first telling the believers they need to take a class on praying. They need to practice it before they start doing it. He just, he, he urged them to pray in all situations. So really what it boils down to is, is that, that you and I are qualified to come before God's throne in prayer. And it's not because any, of any eloquence or, or superiority or, or skill on our part in any way, but it's because we're a child of God covered by the blood of Jesus. That qualifies us to come before God in prayer, and it's exactly what we're reminded of this morning as we look to the communion table. The, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I'll have the elders come forward as we, as we prepare to serve you, but the only reason that we can approach God to speak with him is because Jesus opened the way. He opened the way as our great high priest. He cleansed our, our hearts. He cleansed our bodies by his blood. It was his death upon the cross, his sacrifice of himself, which accomplished those things and, and even allows James to write what he wrote about us coming before God in prayer. And so as a result, let us draw near to him in a, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God. And may the prayers we pray be prompted by our faith and infused with our faith in God as well. So let's keep this in mind as we come before him this morning in communion.